Welcome to Season 5 of the podcast of the Urban Mystic. In this season, we're exploring relational spirituality, which is rooted in immediate engagement with God. It is a relational mystical spirituality, encouraging people to enter deeply into living and loving in relation to their own self, others, the cosmos, and God. In seeking to establish a relational spirituality on the foundation of our value for intimacy with God, we're teasing out the difference between our relationship to the practice of the faith and to the pursuit of relationship with God. In this episode, we continue the discussion on our value for intimacy with God. We contrast the idea of God as a proprietary offering who is only available through an exclusive religious service provider with the idea of God as universal presence available in and through everyone and everything, everywhere and everywhere. It is our proposition that this continuum is a false binary that does not have intimacy with God in view, for on neither end of the spectrum is reciprocity and attentional relationship the key. It's always weird taking a bit of a gap in between, like we like we have. We we recorded a session, had a break in between, and so, in terms of just trying to maintain the continuity here, we had a conversation about one end of the spectrum, in terms of spirituality, leading towards the, uh, I guess, the constructivism of Christianity and the constructivism of Christian experience when it comes to altar calls. You know, the sense that that group pressure or peer pressure or your service design, your sales pitch really is where God works and God is expected to work rather than there being some kind of engagement, some kind of space for people to engage God uh, more directly or more meaningfully. Uh, I suppose more directly rather than meaningfully because there are people that do have meaningful engagements in that situation. Anyway, on the on the other end of the spectrum is the omnipresence of God, the ever-presentness of God, the 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 God being present to everyone, everyone, everywhere. That God is is always there. God is universally present. The sense of of there being almost like an immediate forced encounter that looks like it's packaged in a particular way is one end of this extreme, and then on the other end of the extreme or the other end of the spectrum is the sense of this universal presence that is around, and the idea is is really. You, you know, you're either impoverished by not being aware of it or you are uh, enriched by recognizing that there is this presence. And if you can just be aware of it and orientate your consciousness on it, then that's, then that's intimacy with God or that's, that's knowing God. And I think on that end of the spectrum, although it's, it's in the opposite direction, I don't think it solves the, prob- the, the, the challenge or the problem that we're putting on the table, or at least it's... It's not the direction that we headed in. It's not the core of what I feel relational spirituality is about, which is moving towards more relational engagements, more immediate encounter, really, or at least having those, yeah, having having opportunity and space for immediate encounter and making that it, that relational engagement the core of spirituality, as opposed to the core of spirituality being the way you package it and sell it in in, in a particular like church environment or setting. Or on the other end of the extreme, the fact that you you completely take all wraps and all definitions off, and it's just about your consciousness and your and your openness. So I thought I'd just throw that out to start and um, and see if we need to narrow it down, perhaps, or just clarify it a bit more. Yeah, absolutely. I this I kind of pause because I find this other end of the spectrum is is a little bit more complex for me to start to begin to describe. 
and you know for us to um to really kind of put as clearly and concretely on the table as we can and as fairly i think in terms of you know how how people are putting it forward themselves to be able to then distinguish between that and potentially what we're saying and there's a couple of pieces to that puzzle for me in terms of why it's complex so you know I, i'm always kind of I feel a little on the back foot in terms of kind of at which angle do I come at this from first. But perhaps it's fair then to say, to start with, so this this kind of thinking, I, I first came across this kind of thinking through Father Richard Rohr, who is a Franciscan Catholic kind of brother, priest, and who's been quite influential in me through his writing and some of his some of his his stuff that I've I've listened to as well in terms of of how he speaks about God and access to God and God's nature etc. But I essentially understand him and others because he's obviously not the only one speaking about this to be saying that that God's presence is everywhere. This the kind of the term that they talk about is is panentheism. So God's spirit, God's nature, God's being is in and kind of through and around everything that we can experience in this world. There is this this that's exactly the omnipresence idea at all spaces at all times. I would guess you would even go as far as to say, I guess, in, in equal measure, God is as much with me. You know, when I'm brushing my teeth as in a church, as on top of a mountain, as in the deepest, darkest valley, in the most painful moments in our life, and the most joyous. Like, it's just, it's all over the spectrum. But it does not, to my mind, speak about the energy of attention. Where is God placing God's, you know, I would think of some of kind of the Old Testament language of God's gaze. Where is God looking? Where is God acting? And then I think within the human realm, that's a dynamic word. Where is God moving towards? Where is God raising God's hands, putting God's hands to work? Where is God moving with God's feet? And, and I know, so, you know, this is very sort of metaphorical or analogous language, but it, it is this idea that God is busy. And, and the idea of placing your attention on something is I guess by I guess by definition actually is a um, what's the language I'm looking for. There, there's only so much uh, you can't pay attention to all things at all times equally. The the very idea of attention by definition is that you tune out some things and you point your attention, your energy, your gaze, your force, your will towards something. Yeah. In that sense, attention is, is it's selective and it's focused. Yes, 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 exactly. And so there's the economic term I'm thinking of is opportunity cost. I can't look left and look right. But if I turn to look right, the cost of looking to the right is that I don't get to see to the left. And so that that for me encapsulates an idea of for God to be omnipresent, God is paying attention and directing God's will and energy to all things equally, all at the same time. And, and that's, not, that's not something that kind of clicks with me. And so I think I want to sort of 
differentiate between the idea that God can be in some way present all over the place. There's, you know, what we've talked about earlier between the sort of the, the creative and sustaining element of God and God's nature. But then in the personal nature of God, I find the word attention to be more helpful. And that attention does have, a, I'm looking here, not there element. I'm, I'm exerting my will or my force or my desire this way, not that way. And I guess you, you quickly come up against that kind of, you know, is God strong enough to make a box that God can't escape from kind of idea of, well, you know, is God not strong enough to be able to do that all the time, everywhere, in equal measure, everywhere. But, but that doesn't track with my experience. My experience is that God shows attention, and I've experienced this in a group and individually, that there are times at which God shows more or less attention, is more or less present, etc. And so I guess I would start by saying, to my mind, the first statement that God can be, the panentheistic statement that God can be everywhere all the time, kind of to greater or lesser extent, I guess, in equal measure, can exist alongside the idea of God pays special attention to things. If one is willing to work with that in a juxtaposition, and so I guess you almost approach the first position from the second position, which is God when God acts personally, shows attention, etc. But there is also a sense of God creating and sustaining in a general sense. But I think if you only focus on the general create a sustainer sense, I think that excludes the idea of the personal, the attention, the energy there. And so I think from one direction, both can stand side by side somewhat comfortably, but from the other direction, I don't see that happening. And I don't, I haven't read, and I, and I haven't read everyone or everything. What? What do you mean? What have you been doing? <laughs> It's a, it's a horrible admission. I must be. It's confession time. Uh, <laughs> but I haven't come across yet the language of God is everywhere, but God also pays special attention from this kind of theoretical position yet. And and so that that immediately makes it complex. I think what also makes it complex is that. I think it's a very helpful and healthy view to integrate into oneself the idea that God is not selectively present in terms of a, I guess what I would talk about kind of some of my, my previous theology or my history in church based on kind of a, a shame and a sort of a punishment idea alone, right? And I'm just going to kind of pigeonhole that on its own because I had I was very formed by the idea of this kind of sin God who hates us and hates us so much that the only way he could bear to look at us is by looking at his son and then hates us so much that because he's looking at us through his son, kills his son, and somehow all of this comes together neatly tied in a bow that somehow we can now all be happy friends and play happy families with this God that hates us but also suddenly now loves us very deeply and only hates us because it loves us so deeply. And I'm not going to expand on that any further, but I first came across Richard Rohr's writings when I was sort of exiting that and asking a lot of questions. 
And it was unbelievably helpful for me to think about a God whose character is not withdrawn from me from that sort of shame and punishment perspective. And that I somehow either have to earn, because I, I think the language is confusing sometimes. Sometimes you have to earn your way back across the bridge towards God, even though the language is on the surface. It's kind of free gift or whatever. Or you have to agree to this set of beliefs where you're essentially crossing the bridge to a psychopath who both hates and loves you at the same time. So it's this, it's this really weird mixture. And, and I experienced this incredible sense of freedom and rest and and kind of personal space when I was listening to Richard Raw talk about this God who's everywhere and that the only blockage for me was that I needed to raise my level of awareness. And that's the third point of complexity that I'll come to in a second. It just and and I think we should chat a little bit more about the second point as we go forward because we touched on it briefly before we started recording and, and you had some thoughts there as well. So it's not meant to be exhaustive. I'm just going to sort of try and lay this out in a row and then we can jump around. But it was amazingly freeing for me to get a sense that God could be around me, even if I'd done something naughty, <laughs> even if I had, you know, I don't know, depending on which faith background you'd come from, I'd been dancing or drunk alcohol or talked to a girl, <laughs> whatever it might be, you know, any, any of the weird and insane you know, sort of things that, that that kind of pass for religion. And so I do think that 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 occupies a special place for me, but I've come to understand it as not being enough. And I think that's where I sort of land on this this third point of complexity of the idea of 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 the experience of God giving special attention or not, as the case may be. And so that's what we need to uh, try and uh, tease out and try and set straight or, or wrap, our, wrap our heads and our voices around, I guess, tonight as we're chatting. But those are some of the thoughts kind of that just spark off initially as we've been thinking and chatting and, and from what you said just now. Just picking up on that and, and, and summarizing in a bit. I mean, basically we're speaking about there's a, there's a shift in, in consciousness, I guess, from one kind of environment and setting where people, where the message is, you're a sinner, you're not good enough, you don't get it right, even if you try your best, you're separate from God. How you make peace with God is through, and how you engage God is through very, is through curated events and activities that take place within a building and within the context of a religious service that are mediated in that way. That's, that's on one hand. On the other end of the uh, uh, on the other end, yeah, we're saying, but that's almost saying that that's not the case. You know, Christ died for you; it opens the way. God's got this uh, universal presence. God is uh, enmeshed in everything. God is equally available anywhere and anywhere to everyone to anyone. So we move from from this language or this this consciousness of separation towards cultivating a consciousness of immersion, because on the other hand, then. If God is present everywhere and everywhere to everyone, what's keeping you from God? Really, it's your thoughts. It's your it's your identity. And so you've got to shift in self-image. And I guess in a way that as I look at this, I think that the big change is a self-image change within the individual, not necessarily a change of relational experience with the divine. 
the, the on one hand, I'm feeling like the one end of the spectrum describes someone whose identity is the identity of someone that's separated from God because they're not good enough, and on the other end of the spectrum is is someone who's who feels good about themselves in life and has got a positive self-image because they do feel that they're good enough and they do feel that God is available and that God is around and that God doesn't hate them and you know like they're fully immersed in God as opposed to completely separate or separated from God, and I think in both cases. We're actually dealing with the psychological health of the individual and how they see themselves in relation to the divine. But at neither point are we touching on the ins and outs of their relational engagement with the divine. And so I think that that third point, and what I sort of I put a pin in and I didn't come back to expressly, the idea that you should be able to heighten your awareness, and that is equal although to be fair to my understanding at least of what of what the authors are putting on the table from this perspective I don't think they're saying expressly this but that if you heighten your awareness that means you can immediately have access to the divine at a very immersive and deeply fulfilling level and and that is actually closer to what they're saying because I was going to say that you can have a relational connection with them but I want to keep that language distinct that's very different. The idea that, that you are, to a sense, in control of heightening your own awareness to release yourself, to fall into the awaiting arms of the divine that will always catch you, always be there, always be there in same measure, etc., etc., is, on the one hand, a potential statement of depth of relational connection but also isn't, and so then I agree more with your assessment that it comes back to, is it's still in some ways within that fold of the self-inner work. And I can just, if I renew myself internally in some way, that affects the relationship. It's also for me why it's a bit complex, because self-renewal always affects relationships, I would say. But this is where why I'm saying it's so important to keep that language distinct because a fully immersive constantly sustaining sense of being enveloped within the divine is different to talking about attention and the kind of energy that comes with specific relatings and perhaps the best way I would understand is that to be in a relationship with someone can be an immersive experience. And I think an unhealthy relationship has high anxiety and lack of trust on the nature of that immersive experience. What I mean is people are always going, is this true? Can it be true? Is this real? Is this really happening? Am I worthy? Are they worthy? Are we in? Are we out? How are they looking at me? How are they not? no relationship flourishes under that amount of anxiety attack. But a relationship that embeds itself, that sits back, that I'm picturing somebody just leaning back in a chair at peace, that sits back and leans into a relationship that you know. The person is not home right now, but I am in relationship with this person. There is a sense of an omnipresence, I think, that a deep flourishing relationship has as one of its foundational characteristics. It means 
if you leave the person's specific presence, you don't leave the relationship. The relationship still has an impact on both people, even when the specific presence is not at play. I leave the house, I leave my spouse, I am still married, connected to that person. doesn't matter where I go or who I talk to or what I do, that relationship has an omnipresence field to it that filters through everything. But if I'm at work and my spouse is not there, I cannot speak to the specific relational or relating aspects of that. I can't say, here I am within the omnipresence of being you know, married, let's say, to this person, and I'm sitting at my desk in the office, and look how the two of us are relating to each other. It's nonsense. And I think, theoretically, this theological position Maybe this is a bit unfair. This is where I'd love to have the conversation with these kinds of authors. Perhaps suggests that that omnipresence field of the relationship is more important than the specific relating, or perhaps precludes, excludes that part of the relationship. And that that is the level of trust, intimacy, and receptivity that you can just relax into and go, awesome, everything's fine. And I think it, as I'm speaking now, that is for me, that's probably the, the best way I can understand it now. That was the gift to me, was I realized I could lean into an immersive relationship where previously I'd kind of imbibed the belief idea, you know, well, Jesus has made a way and God loves you and you're reunited, blah, blah, blah. There's so, so much like shame and, and threat and all sorts of things embedded in that system. It was very hard to just lean out of anxiety into trust and wholeness and all the rest of this is great. We're in a relationship together. I don't know if that helps in terms of, because those distinctions I think for me are super key. Like you can have specific relating to people and you can have included in that the field, the experience of the general relatedness, that omnipresence relationship thing. But you can't tell me you have the omnipresence relationship thing without the specifics. That's an arranged marriage. <laughs> and that's like, like, how does that work? It, it doesn't. I feel like I want to go back to that distinction in, in silence and absence between someone who hasn't experienced God, you know, between the believer and the mystic to be along those lines. Like just, just to return to that. I was, I was having a, a conversation with, with, with someone, with some people over the weekend and the one couple said, yeah, but when I, like I've got an established relationship with my partner, there's times when we can just sit in silence in each other's presence. Like I'm here, I'm reading, I'm chilling, I'm doing my thing, I'm in my inner world, my, you know, my partner, she's over there, she's chilling, she's reading, she's doing whatever, she's in her own inner world, and we're, we're there in each other's presence. So there's just a, you know, there's the, the, the quietness and the intimacy of being in each other's presence like that. It's just, that's natural, that's normal, that's healthy in a healthy relationship, you know, all of that kind of thing. And I said, yeah, that's, 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 that's the case. But so you don't need to be in constant contact in terms of touch. You don't need to be in constant talking to each other. You don't have to be in a state of constantly checking, you know, et cetera, et cetera, because you've got, you've got an established level of, of comfort and trust and confidence. And if the person's not there, you should still feel healthy and connected to them, like on one level. But there is a difference between whether they're in the room with you and if they're halfway across the planet and they're not available for you to engage. 
But then equally, there's a difference between their availability to connect with you. When they turn the attention to you and they speak to you, you don't just stay in silence. <laughs> that then becomes rude and that becomes uncomfortable. Or when you turn to them, it's not as though they can't hear you. Or if they if they just totally ignore you and they don't respond, that's very different to a loving kind of partnership where you will have lots of verbal and nonverbal interaction, lots of communication, that's all healthy. I feel that what happens is, is that as an image gets taken and then transposed, as though to just shift your consciousness or to shift your understanding from I'm a worm and I'm not acceptable to God to, oh, God is everywhere and I'm forever immersed in God's presence. Oh, look, God and I have this deep, silent intimacy. <laughs> no, you don't. No, we don't. <laughs> we almost too quickly draw on images of a mature and established relationship when we make the shifts. Because, yes, there is a shift in terms of an individual's internal, like their self-image, their self-image in relation to the divine. Their, what is it? Their self-worth, really, is probably a better uh, phrase here than self-image. Self, self because your self-worth in an environment where you cast as a sin and you're separated from God and God's just angry with you and wants to smite you is very different to your, your self-worth cast in an environment where you're never actually far from the presence of God. And God is always silence, silently abiding throughout the whole of the cosmos. So yes, there is a difference between those. But I, I think the challenge here, as I said, is, is yes, in a mature established relationship, there's object permanence, there's relational uh, boundaries, there's, there's getting to know each other. You, you know, there's all those things that go together with it. But the problem, or at least the challenge that, that, that I have here, or at least with this kind of thinking, the challenge with this kind of thinking is that there's none of the groundwork to relationship being put on the table. So there's none of the, am I, am I recognizing God's voice? Am I recognizing God's presence and activity? It, it very quickly becomes, your know, God is equally present in equal measure everywhere, therefore there's no attentional standout experiences or, or engagements and I think that's where I think we're moving from one idea of relating to the divine to another idea of relating to the divine but they're internalized and yes they've got a massive impact on how I see myself how I relate to others and how I relate in the context of religion and spirituality but that doesn't equate with the work of relationally engaging God and moving from stranger to friend to hosting God. I think yes, where it's difficult to, it's actually difficult to speak about. It's difficult to get a handle on it because we go from such a narrow, unhealthy focus to such an open-ended, everyone is just, everything is all, all included. There's, yeah, on one end of the spectrum, you can know God through specifically curated events and activities that takes place within the context of going to church or a temple, or a monastery, or a, you know, but within the religious goods and services. And on the other, you don't need any of that. And there is no moment of differentiated encounter, because God is equally present in everything, in the wind, in the trees, in the silence, in the absence. You, you've, you, there's a change in your self-worth that just says to you, you're accepted. You don't need any special engagement or any special encounters.
I think partly, and as I listen to you here, partly uh, part of what makes this so complex is that it's more than, I mean, we're just talking about kind of two points on a spectrum amongst a 9D or 15D or 38D model, right? Because there's a lot more than just this one thread that goes into understanding kind of relating to God. I mean, some of the, what I hear you talking about there is something that you put on the table a couple of episodes back, which was so helpful, the idea of moving from not knowing God to knowing God to then absence of God, right? So there's that entire movement from not meeting to strangers meeting to getting to know each other, et cetera, et cetera. There's a, there's, we have growth of intimacy starting there, and you cannot have silent intimacy between two people unless that has built from somewhere. There have to be building blocks that come previous to that. You know, nobody sits intimately with some stranger in silence. That's it, that those two don't work together. So that's one of the threads. There's threads of different experiences of different belief systems and what they have to say about God and moving through those. There's the actual different kind of theoretical positions of this, you know, each side of the spectrum of, you know, God is curated to this and God is free and wild and everywhere. There's a number of things that all come together again, which we just seem to keep bumping our heads up against, just constantly finding these balls of wool with a number of different colors all woven in together. And, and I enjoy that. So I, I, I might sound a little agitated, but it's, it's just because I'm thinking, yes, again, we're having to tease out what are we specifically talking about right now? And it's not to be misunderstood with, even though I introduced that earlier, it's just a move from a more oppressive way of understanding God to a more free, more liberated way of understanding God. That's part of what's going on here and part of how I experienced it. But what we're actually talking about is the idea of whether relating to God in intimacy is, as you say, on the one side of the spectrum, is curated by an institution or happening with certain people and roles and you know elements to, to each happening to God is everywhere all the time, always. And a level of intimacy is available if you will just heighten your awareness disregarding the building blocks of what goes into relational intimacy, which is a meeting, a glance, a touch, an action, a kind word, a helping hand at the right time, a chance encounter, a surprise encounter. All these things happen that build to a, oh, I could actually tell you this person's name, this thing's name, this recount to you the happening, et cetera. And then there are more happenings that build, and that is that is curated by both sides. And that's a long road before you sit silently with each other, just enjoying each other's presence and feeling intimately connected without saying anything. And so that's part of what I find quite complex about all of this is just not disregarding, but for a moment setting aside some of the elements that, you know, not specifically under our microscope as we chat this evening. You know, there's, there's the language or, or the idea of the relational transactions that are taking place. You know, who, who is active and who is receptive as, as part of it. And I think on the one end of the spectrum, 
you've got people on stage curating at events that are very active. Uh, but then what's happening within the individual is within that context, they're having an internal experience. And, and yes, they might move through the events and have interactions. So they're having an internal experience. They're having, yeah, they're having an experience that one could say is, is really within themselves as they reflect and engage and as they make a decision to participate in that coming to salvation event at the altar call, right? So, so, so the relational transactions there is, is within, a, within a context uh, that's, that's between the, the event and the people leading the event and, and the person responding. But then within, the, within that individual, they're having an internal and intra-relational experience. It's not an inter-relational experience with the divine. It's an inter-relational experience with an event and a process that's taking place, that they're participating in. So there's, there's that... So you free someone of that because I think I think if we've got to choose between two dysfunctional things, pick the lesser dysfunctional one, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so if that's if that's our only choices, by all means, we should move from one to the other and just be done with it. But I don't think that's 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 all that's on offer. I think on the other end of the spectrum, you've got an individual again having an in true relational experience as they engage themselves around the idea and the understanding of the presence of God. So they're moving from saying, um, I have got no access to God's presence and or I've got limited access within these environments to that uh, on the other end of the uh, other end of the spectrum basically I've got open access. And I think that's healthier. There's, there's, you know, the ones a poor self-worth environment, the others a, a, a rich self-worth environment. Like it's, it's much better for you. And then where is the relational transactions taking place? The relational transactions at that end of the spectrum, again, is, is, is once that internal is sorted, oh, I see God in that person. Oh, I see God in the tree. I see God in the stray animals. You know, I see God in the, in the tea that I'm drinking. You know, so, so, so my attitude of mind has changed. And I've got a much more positive outlook and I'm relating to people with the sense that or with the idea of the understanding that to relate to others is to relate to God. To value others is to value God. To value, you know, the cosmos that's around me is to value God. But there, as opposed to uh, the other end of the spectrum where the, 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 the move is from the intra-relational dynamics to the inter-relational dynamics involved in the setting... Here, I've just got a different setting. I've got a, a green setting. I've got an open-ended, open-world, open-cosmos setting. My interaction is with the, with the cosmos and the sense that the divine is somehow wrapped up in this. But it's not the same as... In neither environment is immediate engagement with the divine being put on the table and in focus, in the practice of spirituality or the practice of that shift of consciousness... Because it's a shift of consciousness that's in focus, not a yeah, not a relational engagement that's in mind. So I want to slice that an element of that a little bit thinner. So let's say, because I, I think that the case could be made that if you mindfully have an internal shift, right? You have that intra-experience, but you very mindfully process and have that on purpose, 
how can I put that? You 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 place yourself God, let's say, as you go through that. That is to an extent a relational happening because I can come to some realizations about you as my friend, Tim, and I can process some of those things and I could put myself in your presence and I could process those verbally in front of you. And you would experience that at the, as the same time as me. And so there is an interaction happening. But it is not a, shall we say, culminated relational I keep coming up against the word transaction, and that's not what I'm looking for. But there is not a culminated relational happening. Thank you for processing that. This is what I hear you saying. This is what I think about it, etc. And then we were to start to move into a back and forth. Because let's say all I ever did, because I think in the moment you can go, no, that has that has elements of relational happening. Me going, okay, well, God, I'm here and I'm thinking this stuff through in front of you. In the same way that, you know, I sometimes watch my kids think something through in front of me and I take great pleasure and joy in that. And if they look at me, I'm smiling or I'm nodding or I'm offering, yes, yes, keep going, keep going. And that has deep relational value. But if that's only ever the case, and I am never in return, let's say. Now, let me stick with one, <laughs> one example. I'm going to muddy the waters too far. I'm going to come back to the working things through with you. If, if we take that one example and then we extrapolate that out across, say, 20 years, if it only ever happens that you and I sit down and I'm telling you about things I'm, you know, I've watched you, I've observed you, I'm learning this about you, et cetera, et cetera, and the energy only ever and attention, et cetera, only ever flows Oh, it's not complete, but I'll come back to that. Only ever flows one way. That is a deficient relationship, even though there are elements of relationalness, for lack of a better phrase, happening. At some point, you we would have to enter into conversation, interaction, a fight, whatever, mutual encouragement, etc., over what I'd brought to the table and started telling you. Or we could move on from that. You could simply nod, and then you could tell me something about me, and we could talk about that. There has to be a back and forth. And I think that, for me, is one of the downfalls of the position of the only, the intra. I think it gets close, but it's not reciprocal. And deep intimacy, flourishing relationship is reciprocal. Exactly, exactly, exactly. I think, I think that elements... That element of reciprocity is not on the table on either end of these spectrums. Yes. On on the strong evangelical side of the spectrum, the reciprocity is in an inaccessible historical event. Or oh, it's coerced even, right? I mean, it's not true, but it's coercive, right? As in, we God will act because we're running an altar call now. So it is going to happen, even if it's not actually God acting. There's a sense of coercing both sides while acknowledging 
tacitly acknowledging both, but not really expressly acknowledging both and taking both seriously. Yeah, but 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 functionally, the the activity of the divine is 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 back in history. In in the person work of Jesus, and the death and the resurrection and that kind of stuff. The the engagement is not between you and God in the here and now. It's it's your acknowledgement that that's that's when and how God was really at work. You know, we we we're not looking for experience here. You're not looking for an engagement. You 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 you're responding in faith, is what is what's on the table. Yeah, I think that I'm only mentioning the the idea of of God working in the moment. You know, that idea of like, well, God will bring the people. You know, it's something God does in you to raise your hand and say, "Ooh, me, 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 me." Do you know what I mean? But I feel like that's the coercive element. Like, well, if we set it up like this. God is going to get some of these poor bastards to put their hands up and come forward, <laughs> basically. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, carry on. Exactly. Whereas, whereas I do think that on the other end of the spectrum, we're actually dealing with the same kind of thing because, it's a, again, it's a statement of faith. I believe that God is around, therefore I behave differently. And it can have deep and profound implications in terms of my psychology, my attitude, my behavior, again, my self-worth. But the... The criteria of reciprocity here is not being met. Even even if I do that intentionally in God's presence, open and close quotation marks. I, I might be coming within myself aware of the idea that God is present everywhere. Right. That doesn't change the fact that 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 th- that was no different when I was on the other end of the spectrum. So, so what's changed? What is the functional change here? The functional change is the change of consciousness and how we train our consciousness, how we train our perception. But we're training it from our side without necessarily having enough consistency in terms of reciprocity. So I think, I think what makes this a little bit more confusing is that on both ends of the spectrum, you do have people experiencing God. I but I think the fact that people do experience God everywhere along the continuum is not as supporting or validating any of those positions, either the extremes or even a midpoint in between those two positions. I think it's an aside to what's going on there. Because I think that neither position has in mind reciprocity. The one basically has in mind your faithfulness and your service to a religious institution uh, in and through a religious institution, and the other one has in mind your sense of loving presence and attitude and receptivity to everyone. And I, and I think to be unfair to both ends of the spectrum, on the unfair, ungenerous side of this, both positions specifically exclude any form of reciprocity. Other than, as you say, first position, the reciprocity happened already 2,000 years ago, and perhaps there's some stimulus happening now that you'll respond to that, but that's it. And then the other one, the reciprocity is almost unimportant or less evolved consciousness level-wise than this greater knowing of just everything. God is there in everything all the time, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's in the very ungenerous. It it's actively dissuades the idea of reciprocity. Perhaps in the more generous, it might acknowledge reciprocity, but I still don't see that as a central event in either position. 
and specifically as we talk tonight about the God is everywhere position, I don't see that being a main event element. It it kind of, well, you know, you can't really control this God, so they might do something <laughs> almost, you know. And perhaps, again, perhaps a, a slightly, you know, more unfairly, that's almost an embarrassment. Like, you know, well, we do our best, but like he doesn't always listen to the rules and sometimes does his own thing statement. And that it's very most generous. I, I, I do feel as though I've come across either hints at or some more clear-ish statements around things do happen. But it's not center stage. What's center stage is the heightened level of consciousness within the individual, their orientation towards the omnipresent God, the creator, sustainer, the panentheistic presence that is always accessible if you're able to orient and keep reorienting and keep, in, in a sense, training yourself, although that's an unfair statement because I'm misrepresenting. It's, I think these writers would describe this more as an untraining than a training because it has less to do with a very specific physical mental effort and a lot more to do with a letting go and, a, and a allowing a realization to dawn, etc. And there is the non-specificity of God's action is like a well that slowly fills up sort of mysteriously from underneath and allows you to lean more and more into the omnipresence thing. But that's center stage. And sometimes they're almost almost aberrations or just perhaps lucky moments or whatever it might be. But it's not center stage that reciprocity is an important aspect. I think this this is still by way of us whittling away and around in some senses what we're not saying. And and that the challenge is to, to more clearly articulate what it is that we are expecting and what we are looking to. And I think that it's not easy to arrive there because positions like this are so open-ended that they basically say that they're, they're doing that. They're fulfilling the requirements of reciprocity by doing what they're doing because how can we contain God or how can we limit God to special events only in them trying to get help, get away from what's at the other end of the spectrum in a very healthy sense. And they're doing that. I don't think that they're necessarily opening up to healthy engagement with God. And that's where the challenge comes in. How do you move away from very unhealthy trapping kind of religious dynamics into a space of freedom like, that's answered. I think that's there. How do you move from that space of freedom towards a genuine depth of reciprocal intimacy? I don't think that's being answered. It's a tough one to say out loud, I feel. Because it, these these are not soft hitters, right? <laughs> no. And I feel I feel guilty and uncomfortable saying it, I just want to say. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. And I mean, it's something I, I, I kind of voice that because, you know, in a sense, I'm just being brave and kind of voicing it for the two of us, knowing that we've we've kind of bashed this around a lot off air between the two of us and going, okay, surely we're not feeling something and sensing something that, that like big, big, I would term spiritual giants like a Richard Raw have either missed or, you know, are excluding or, or not interested in or, or whatever. But I also, I can't get away from the fact that 
I'm trying to think what analogy serves me best. I think I still keep keep coming back to the intimate other relationship just because I think it is it really is an epitome of intimacy that the one other individual that you choose exclusively, whatever that may be, to pursue deeply and intimately and going when I talk generally when 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 a person is with that other person there's something specific going on when you are away physically away from that other person there are huge amounts of the energy and intention of that relationship that go with you it doesn't change and that's that is a vital part of a relationship you can't behave differently and I'm going to qualify that, I think, away from your intimate other than you behave with them. And what I mean by that is if you are deeply intimate with them and then you leave having promised them that you're that they are your one and only and you go and try and be deeply intimate with somebody else at the same level, you are betraying that relationship. It doesn't work. In the same way that if you are completely different out there in the world and joyous and happy and all the rest and you come home to this other person and you're miserable it doesn't work something of the essence of that relationship is with you everywhere i think and that is absolutely something 100 percent. i believe an individual can work on in terms of their own awareness that you can heighten that and that you can craft that not to a point where it's oppressive Oh God, what am I doing? What would my husband, wife, partner, whatever think? But that there is a recognition that you belong to yourself, but you also belong to another in a way that is deeply mystical, mysterious, beautiful, liberating, special, etc. But that's not the engine room, as I understand it, of the relationship. The engine room of the relationship is in the specific interactions. And that general essence of the relationship is fueled by the specific interactions, such that I believe you live a relational lie to an extent if you only ever live governed and sustained by the essence of that relationship. Because then the opposite is true. Then when you come back to that person in their presence, they are creating and you are creating with them a way of being that is different to the essence that you carry everywhere. Perhaps the way you speak to each other or ignore each other or berate each other or whatever it might be. That is the actual, you know, if, if, if there is no specific interaction, then the God who loves you deeply never speaks to you. How does that inform that special continuing ever-presentness? If I can jump back to the human divine. You carry that with you everywhere that you go. Come and meet this God, this amazing God who ignores you and doesn't want to talk to you. This essence of this relationship I carry with me and I want to share with you this amazing compassionate God who won't spend time with me. <laughs> this amazing compassionate God who won't look at me. Then what is the essence of that relationship? What is it built from? The nature of that God? Well, are we now borrowing from the first position 
which is we have to understand the nature of that God as extrapolate as 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 fetched from two thousand years ago, dragged into the present. Is is that what fuels the essence? No relationship can withstand a prolonged period of the lack of the specificity outside of, I would say, drastic faith and belief and fidelity towards the essence of that relationship. So the reason I pause there for a second is I know of people who got married and then moved away from each other for 30, 40 years and stayed faithful to that relationship. But that is a very peculiar manner that would be margin. That's that's on the margins of how relationships operate. I would say 80 to 90 to 95 to 98% of relationships don't function like that. They function in the everyday, in the connective, in the we're verbally, physically, spiritually, erotically, what other ways, interacting with each other. And so based off that, the essence has to be supported by what's happening in the specific. And so while I value the statements of the essence, I think, okay, but I need to see the root of that. What is this What is this root other than just a giant mysterious God who we can't fathom and somehow you're just deeply connected to him as a parent and that you just have to give yourself to? I think on the one hand, good, that's good. On the other hand, no, the building blocks of that kind of trust and intimacy and the lowering of anxiety happens in the specific interactions. Happens when my child, for example, looks up and sees me smiling at them while they're trying to learn something new in my presence or hears an encouraging word. That reciprocity is, is you, you, can't, you can't do it without that. I, I don't see yet how you could do it without that. To summarize, we, we, we are saying that intimacy with God is on the one hand not a legal change of status, such as the exodus or the crucifixion and looking back, and one's confirmation and acceptance of that in faith, on on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, it's not a change of self-worth and consciousness, as in one's open-mindedness towards the potential of God. I, I I think that, that's particularly a healthy position. And I think that the other position does affirm some very key things going back to the behavior of this God in history. Yes. But neither are holding in mind, as you say, the dynamic relational engagement between the divine and the human. And that dynamic relational engagement is fundamentally experiential. It's emotional. It's commun- it, it involves communication. It's a, it's a whole person experience. And I think that's, that it's very important <clears throat> to shift the expectation towards that engagement. That in either context, <clears throat> I think we, we, we change the dynamic when we put relational engagement on the table as the primary reason that one is gathering or the primary reason that one is 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 de- decontextualizing or deconstructing or going towards the open-ended position. 
you know, one is leaving the restriction in order to become open-ended so that one can engage. Or one is entering into a more restricted environment and more curated experiences because one wants to engage. That engagement is often viewed as problematic and there's kickback around the abuses and the dysfunction, which again doesn't put anything on the table that says what does healthy engagement look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like I like that. Yeah, I, I would say to sum it up from my side, I would think it's an oversimplification, but very helpful for me in my thinking to say, if you put first things first to approach it, and that's what I hear you saying, it has to be approached. I don't exclude, you know, as you talk about, you know, the legal change. It's an, it's an emotional and special thing for someone to change their legal status and declare legally that they're connected with someone else. It's wonderful. It doesn't make a long-term intimate relationship on its own. So it's a secondary issue. Leaning into a trust and a belief and a resting on a relationship and its foundational sort of concepts is a beautiful thing. It's a special thing in relationship, but I don't think it's primary. And so that for me, I think that's what I hear you summing up is first things first, experiential, first person, relational connection, divine to human. What is secondary to that and what is incorporated in that as your primary departure point is the other things that we've been talking about. Includes opportunities for silent intimacy. Includes the idea of a work that is done that somehow changes a legal status. And that's a very loaded thing because we potentially they're talking about atonement theories. And I don't really want to get into that, but broad strokes, absolutely incorporates a need, I would say, to rest trustingly with low anxiety on the nature of such relationship. Even if you are resting more and more over time with less and less anxiety as that relationship grows, hence you have more access to more of an essence over time, right, As as a relationship grows. But all of that is built on the primary characteristics, which is the experiential. And I like your use of the whole person. And even that is is a complex statement because I don't think, I don't believe we enter relationships as whole people. I think you have to do a significant amount of work within yourself as an individual to enter a relationship resembling a whole person. You, You might start dating when you're 90 if you're lucky. But we discover more and more of who we are as a whole person as we move in relationship. And so I would suggest that as we break that new ground and as we break frontiers within ourselves, those elements of ourselves start to be shared intentionally with the person or thing that we are relating to. And reciprocally, we learn more and more of the other person and thing as that is shared with us. You know, and and that is, you know, that's part of the nature of a growing relationship. But it is built primarily on intentional, relational. I won't revise intentional because sometimes I think it's even just 
somebody can walk in on you who you know well and, and they're doing something strange and then you learn something new about them. So sometimes it's accidental. But but the point is that it it doesn't just happen by osmosis in this great, wonderful soup of, you know, we're connected and isn't that amazing and now there's no barriers to us. Intimacy still needs to be built and it needs to be expressed. It can't just be rested in as if it's as if it's a, a non-exhaustive item of the relationship. It builds and it's expressed and sometimes it's used up even, I would think, as a resource. And people take a step back and, and we move into intimate or less intimate moments and we take a step back, we take three steps forward and we take some space and we press in again and we have different needs for different levels of intimacy in different ways of receiving and expressing that intimacy as we build that together. And this, but I, I, yeah, I think I would characterize that in what I hear you saying, which is just so helpful is the first thing is the relationship, the experience. After that, I'm more comfortable to include all the other things, but I think, I think that is the primary thing. I like the way you phrase that, that, that stuff on breaking new ground and new frontiers within ourselves and we share that with other with with the other in our life those that we are intimate with in spirituality we don't often find that language being used or that sharing or that discovering and sharing but there being a, a an interaction around that between persons and also the way you put that that's that's intimacy can't just be assumed it actually has to be expressed it's got to be given and received it's it's very contextual and we move in and out of intimate engagement. So it's not, it's not a peak experience or, you know, to go back to that very unhelpful statement really, that, that might only happen once in a lifetime or you may or may not happen based on what one is doing. Intimacy is something that one can expect in a healthy relationship. It's something that one can rely on. It's part of, it's part of a healthy relationship that is built and cultivated. Whereas I think, I think with our spiritualities, to speak of intimacy in that way just evidences the degree to which our spiritualities are not intimate. Because on one end of the spectrum, to have a public relationship within a curated meeting amongst a whole bunch of other people, that's not an intimate engagement. Perhaps there's space where, where intimacy or intimate engagement might happen, but, but that's n not really what's in view with those meetings and then on the other end of the uh, the other end of the spectrum on the open-ended intimacy there is also not part of what's expected there or what's being cultivated because it's it's the consciousness and the security which primarily rests in one's self-worth based on the relationship so yeah high anxiety environment not very helpful low anxiety environment m much more helpful in many different ways neither is really cultivating relational engagement. I think what's key for me is that part of part of lowering the, the anxiety in a relationship rests off the relational engagement. I think it's a false it's a false sense of comfort that is not yeah, I don't know, maybe that's maybe that's something that deserves some more thought. It feels like a brave statement to make, but I think like it's a it's a false sense of comfort in a relationship that doesn't offer, at least from time to time, encouraging statements or experiences that back up that sense of trust and low anxiety that you have in the relationship. 
I think it asks a hell of a lot of one person, one side of the relationship to just go, just throw your full trust into this thing. Absolutely, completely lean everything into here. But I never, ever have to meet that trust with a, really glad you trust me. Thanks for that. This is how I'm behaving in response to meeting your trust, et cetera, et cetera. And I think anxiety that lowers through that kind of motion, I think, is set for a peak again in some way, as perhaps you suddenly realize, like, what has this trust been met with other than just a general kind of blanketed, yeah, we're okay. What about a specific thank you, specific you're amazing, specific I value you, specific this is my response to you, this is how I continue. Because, that, that, you know, those kind of trusting environments where there's low anxiety is not, one party is not creating that. One could put it and say within, this is a tradition of spirituality, of theistic spirituality, of theistic mysticism, of engagement between human and divine, neither Jesus nor Moses as the two key figures are satisfied with silence and absence. It's voice mm. and presence, engagement that is key. And somehow we've lost that with our spirituality. I think understanding why and how we've lost that is important. But it's less important than the fact that it can be solved through seeking relational engagement and putting those on the table again putting you know as you said earlier in simplicity putting first things first and the first thing is not necessarily even solving the anxiety because i can solve the anxiety in a but is that love or is it limerence love is reciprocal limerence is one way i can have a feeling of love for a divine someone that i don't know that never returns attention or activity directs activity at me you know you know what i mean like and i think that's the difficult thing that we left with here is i think in our spirituality that is that, that's potentially where we're landing often and to my mind jesus and moses's trust falls not so much primarily on the essence of the relationship so much as in the voice and the presence yeah, the trust rests in interaction, not not an internal security. Yeah, the trust rests in engagement. It's it's mutually reinforced from either side. I would think. Otherwise, it asks a lot of one side of the relationship to keep going. You're asking a lot of the person who's experiencing high anxiety to just get over it and be secure without interacting with them. Whereas two persons can work together to enable someone to, to grow through that anxiety towards a healthy place and a healthy relational, you know, to, to a healthy place within the relationship, within themselves in the relationship. And I think, I think that that's a vital aspect of the journey that I see with a lot of people when engaging and wrestling around this. But many people reflect that when they're, when they're looking for God to answer them, they're only experiencing absence rather than experiencing presence. And when they go and they read a lot of the other spirituality that's out there, they're basically being told, 
to substitute or they're being told that that absence that they're experiencing is the presence. And I think that's where it gets tricky is, is how to how, how to healthily articulate this really. Yeah, because that that's not something I can go along with. The void in your life is the full, unquenchable fire and presence of God constantly on tap, available at any moment. Just reprogram yourself to understand the void is that and then you'll be fine. And 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 that's that's potentially some of the worst, perhaps even uglier sides of this view, I think. But I don't think you're wrong. And that's where I feel like that short-term lower anxiety is in for a massive spike when what eventually breaks back through to the surface. Fuck, <laughs> it's just a void there. And I've just been telling myself it's great, but it's not. <laughs> it's empty and it's dark and it's cold and it feels like there's nothing there. And again, it's just so complex because there's so many, there are so many ways for a relationship to take shape and to form that, you know, as, as you say, just, just now, some, sometimes trust in a relationship in a particular happening or a particular season or a particular growth stage of development of that relationship is one side putting in more effort and becoming more aware and trusting more and getting over some of their own hang-ups or, or whatever it might be. And the other is just standing back and not engaging or not. There's some anxieties I think that are overcome with from within and you have to do that work and you have to bring that as a gift to the relationship. Relationships that require one side to constantly encourage and pick up the other side, they also don't last long-term. Because the real maturity, the flourishing of relationship that rests on these two mature people bringing the fullness of themselves to it. And where the one then in return is having to carry more weight because, no, but we are fine. But we are fine. <laughs> like that, that grows old after, after a while as well. Thinking of the, 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 great, um, the great spiritual work from the 90s, I don't know if you've ever come across it, but it's phenomenal, uh, the TV show Friends. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's this amazing moment where, uh, for anyone who knows that, will hopefully then get this. For anyone who doesn't, go and watch 10 seasons, 10 seasons of Friends, and then come back and listen to this. <laughs> but one of the, one of the characters, uh, Chandler, um, and he's dating Monica, and he's just an incredibly insecure guy. And at some point, they have a conflict. And he says to her, what am I supposed to do? Like, tell me what I need to do and I'm going to fix this. And, and like, I'll do what I need to do and help me out here. And she essentially says to him, like, no, not this time. You're on your own. You need to figure out how to fix this. You've got to come and bring that to our relationship. Essentially, now I'm rewriting the script as I go. You've got to do that. I'm not going to fix this for you because that's what I require of you in my partner to build this partnership is that you bring a fullness of yourself to this and, and you work it out. And then he freaks out and she freaks out. But what happens immediately after that, following what we're talking about is she exits, not just the scene, but his life at that point, she pulls back completely and leaves him alone to figure that out. 
And then as the story plays out, they do figure it out. But he has to go off and do some soul searching and he has to find within himself the ability to move past his own insecurities and then bring that back to the relationship. Now, short term, you could just sort of cut that out and go, look at that, isn't that wonderful? He can do it on his own and doesn't require reciprocity because, you know, you know, he does all the inner work, blah, blah, blah. But long term, that's not what happens. What happens is they move back into a cycle of reciprocity. And that's why it's so complex, because just that as an example, it's just one way of a relationship working through things. And there are many, many ways. And to talk through all the permutations is, is difficult, if not impossible. So I mentioned the one just because hopefully highlighting some of the specifics immediately shows just the masses of areas that are unexplored through that. There's so many things, but it's still grounded in reciprocity. It has to be. No matter how that lowering of anxiety happens, one of the bases, the first things first, is the experiential reciprocity happening between two parties. And outside of exceptional or marginal occurrences, case studies, essentially that is what I understand relationship to be. And that is what dials down the anxiety. And that's what creates the atmosphere in which the relationship can grow and thrive. Because it brings together the validation of the inner work that needs to be done. Because one of the things I love about the, the wisdom tradition is that it puts that emphasis on the inner work that the individual needs to do and their responsibility for that. And I think that is a tremendous gift and a deepening gift but it doesn't for me satisfy um, it doesn't provide the relational spirituality that I feel that I'm I'm looking for and trying to articulate um, because I, I I do feel that it rests on the same mystagogic foundation that that institutional religion rests on you know that you're educated in the faith now you're supposed to just be secure in it oh you know, like you've 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 been born into a faith, therefore by default you've got this never-ending presence, <laughs> you know, that's been with you on the basis that this is your identity, but you've never entered, you've never had a reciprocal engagement, or if you've had a reciprocal engagement, that's to confirm your belief in your faith. It's not to actually build a reciprocal relationship, and that's the fundamental difference. And I think that's really what we're wrestling for and trying to wrestle from this is is to not invalidate any of the um, um, of the schooling or the or the learning or the self work that needs to be done, but it's to say let's add to that the reciprocal engagement. Yeah, perhaps I'll offer you one slight refinement. You can tell me if 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 that also sounds good in terms of what you're saying. My sense is potentially. I don't know, strange or arrogant as this might come across, is that I almost want to place the relational engagement as the foundation that can support the weight of the individual and their own inner work. And perhaps that's not the right way to see it. Perhaps it's better to understand it more of a constellation, but where the central point of that constellation, and if there were to be an axis, that's where it would run through, 
is the idea of relational engagement because to perfect the inner work within oneself is fantastic and is good and is really important but is only deeply eternally fulfilling if you really just want to be a hermit right like you're just going to be best friends with yourself so i I make that stupid example because i think it then it's quite clear like it is desperately important Carl Jung was one asked, the great psychotherapist, one of my great heroes was asked, like, are we ever going to get through the madness and the pain and the difficulty of this present age? And he says, yes, if enough people are willing to go in, inwards and do their own inner work, then we'll be saved. Unbelievably insightful for the individual and how that then would add to our collective being, which is what? is for me the relational web of being that it is to be human and to live in this life. It, 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 it is a this sort of relational potential everywhere that has to manifest and be realized. And so that for me is primary, the relationship. And what adds to that, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's such a close second, but it's like you can't have a deep relationship without doing the internal work. But the inter- like, as you say, the internal work alone is not enough for me. The legal status, the, the past history, like the life of Jesus and the stories, incredibly important to me. But less important as a 2,000 year ago happening than the present tense, me right here, right now, and the relation- relational potential between myself and God. Then I look back at the life of Jesus and go, well, how did Jesus live that out? Moses, Elijah, Adam, Noah, whatever it might be, as I then, you know, I'm now talking both about how it sort of interact with individual stories and a sacred text. You know, there's all of those things are not in the periphery so much as they are a phenomenal supporting act to, for me, the main act on stage. It's the relationship idea. And I'm semi-uncomfortable, to be honest, as I say that out loud. Like, I want to think through that a little bit more, but maybe that's just still some of my past history going, like, whoa, what are you doing relegating these things to the sideline? You can't do that. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm just, I feel like they take on a deeper shade of importance when realized as part of what it means to live out a deeply relational life, as opposed to being tried to be forced to be that deep and meaningful thing in and of themselves. Like I've seen, uh, I had a fascinating conversation with a, a couple, a Jehovah's Witness couple this week, just maybe I'll tell the story at some point, but it just, it happened. And we sat together at my coffee table in the house and we had a long chat and just hearing them talk about the Bible, I was just like, man, it's so clear to me that I just, I can't see the Bible as primary anymore. I just don't see it. And what a wonderful thing, because I don't disregard it and I don't disrespect it and it has no place in my life and it's not any less special. I just realize in the light of what is truly the center, it makes it even more meaningful and even more important and I understand it even better in terms of that's what that is. And no wonder it couldn't bear the weight when I believed that it was everything. Because it's not supposed to bear the weight. It's not supposed to be everything. I can't read the sacred text as if it's the center. Because it's not. And that's my sense of feeling like 
the relational thing is the center. And the other things don't bear the weight of being forced to stand in the middle. Let me, let me just get this back to you briefly. I love what you're saying about it being a constellation and that there's an axis that runs through it. I feel like on the one end of the spectrum, the text is placed at the center and it's one relationship with the text that is key. At the other end of the spectrum, the self is placed at the center and it's the relationship with the self that actually becomes the key. What we're suggesting and putting on the table with relational spirituality, it's our relationship with the divine other that becomes the center. It, it's adding the moniker to the chandler, <laughs> if, essentially, as opposed to the, 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 the chandler on his own in therapy or on his own without therapy. Because any, any spirituality that gives us as the ultimate end the silence of God and the absence of God and doesn't give us intimate engagement is not actually a spirituality that's leading us towards spiritual engagement. It can have all the same elements in play, but as you say, it's a constellation of how those elements are put together that actually gives the constellation its shape, its meaning, its form, its intention, its direction. And and that's that's really what we what, what we're putting is that because we're not saying that history or text is not important, we're just saying it's not the primary thing. And we're not saying that the self is not important, because the self is fundamentally important. We're, we're just saying that the other is also important. The divine other is actually critically important here and is not in focus in spirituality. It's a bold and challenging statement to make. <laughs> yeah, especially is because I feel that one of our next steps is going to be to try and iron out some of the reasons as to why that has been problematic over time. And I don't even know if we need to go there, but it just seems like a big elephant in the room. Because I know that's part of the critique immediately that I hear from people. Oh, you just can't go there because it's just so problematic and people have been so hurt and blah, 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 blah. Oh, I think I think, I think think one can. I, I, I've actually been uh, trying to put into some very neat paragraphs precisely how to do that. So... <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Well, I, I think I think that would I get the sense that that would be really important because I think that's part of the journey. But that's exactly it, and it's to then delineate. Okay, so what what does that then look like to take the divine other seriously? The potential relational connection between the self and the divine other, and then what flows from that: the self to self, the self to other. And I think also then self to cosmos, which is quite big, but then, you know, I would scale that down to like self to kind of natural environment, this earth, you know, kind of sense. I think there's an ecological aspect to that as well. And in a way that those all flow out of the divine to self. And it's difficult to to delineate those to a certain extent, because what is the self other than the vehicle with which to move towards and participate in the divine to other and so it's hard to disentangle self to self and divine to self relationships although they are distinct and how they kind of you know so it's all there and that's why i think of constellation because it's kind of all in there but the primary point for me and we can move further on that i guess at some point is is the divine to other that that's a serious 
viable, important, meaningful, foundational thing and and should be taken can be taken seriously i think that gives us some some good next steps from here as well this has been a really interesting conversation with some things i wasn't expecting that's really cool (laughs) so thank you it's uh it's one of the privileges of being able to open these cans of worms and see where it takes us well thanks for uh for uh thanks that we could do that together i really enjoyed this and i i hope equally that uh, that that you as listeners have been, have enjoyed and continue to enjoy kind of moving where where we're going if you're not enjoying it well you know i can only blame you because you can just turn the podcast off i'm just joking but here you know, we we continue to be grateful for uh, for your support and the uh, the questions and comments that we get from some of you i don't think we put this out as often as we could in terms of perhaps just our our, our own level of uh, of excuse me throwing a beer bottle at myself in the background <laughs> There we go. Just to just to bring kind of percussive backing to what I'm going to say, our own level of awkwardness and discomfort around this. But you know, this is something that Tim and I kind of are, are trying to take as seriously as we can. I think we are taking as seriously as we can within our limited resources and the parameters of our our existence at the moment. But um, it's also something that we wish we could be. And we hope we could be, and I guess at some level we trust we could be more and more freed up to to do more and more of it, engage more and more of it. So what I'm walking around and around the mulberry bush on is we we need support from people to be able to do this kind of thing more and more, to, to keep opening these cans of worms, to keep pushing and thinking and talking and wondering out loud it's not just the podcast there are other things that we desperately would love to get off the ground and we believe should be part of this courses and availability to spend time with you know yourselves as listeners or whoever else needs um, or would like some kind of conversational accompaniment through some of these challenging questions and conversations etc and um whether that's going to come from our listening community or something that supports around our listening community, we have no idea, but I'm kind of just putting it out there. Just a sudden sense of needing to be brave in that and saying, yeah, we really need, um, we need help and we need support and we can't do this on our own. We need a financial web or some sort of financial windfall or happening that would sustain us through through this kind of work that we really believe is is highly important. Thank you. Thank you for being on this journey. Thanks for sharing the podcast, for being in touch with us whenever you have thoughts and comments and questions. Thanks for um, some of your feedback. Uh, we appreciate you. We really, really do. It's, uh, it's a special privilege for us to have these convos and, and to, to post them out there into the dark voids of the interwebs. <laughs> um so thank you really from the from the depths of our heart thank you for being a part of this um this weird and wonderful fascinating journey thank you i mean i i i just want to echo that and say steve thank you for um, yeah for raising that and mentioning that it's a very real thing for both you and i and 
yeah, I mean, as a, as I said in the intro, I can't think of anything better for us to be doing or more important. And um, it'd be great for us to be freer to do this. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, this is this is this is our equivalent of the altar call and tugging in the heartstrings and saying there's a there's a PayPal <laughs> link in the show notes, guys. Please support us. We'd appreciate it. <laughs> oh, the hypocrisy. Exactly. No, it's a, uh, at the very least, we'll just see it as a great way to bring things full circle to the beginning of the conversations. <laughs> it's a good wrap up. 